Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Allison uh, woke up this morning and her back was hurting pretty bad, kind of got bad yesterday, so she's not here, but uh, she's at home resting okay. When uh, I left, uh, she wasn't, we, you know, she was in good spirits, just in dealing with some pain. I said, you know how much, and I said this sarcastically, I've been looking forward to this message and now you're not even going to be there, huh? You're just leaving me, leaving me alone for this. And uh, she chuckled, but that, it is what it is. Uh, I say that as kind of a way of introduction. Um, you know, last week dealing with marriage and how to behave in marriage and uh, the reality of the human condition uh, in the first uh, nine verses of 1 Corinthians 7, uh, there are some challenging things in there, uh, for sure, but I don't think that there's really anything all that controversial to the Christian church in those first nine verses. I mean, pretty, pretty basic stuff. Uh, this is different. I know there's some disagreement in these verses, um, disagreement that I don't think should divide Christians. I just think some disagreement in these verses about what they mean and what right conduct should be. And when you're faced with that kind of disagreement, I guess one way to avoid it would be to never teach on it ever. And that would be, you could avoid it, I guess, at that point in time. You just, uh, if you, you know there's some disagreement, you just will never go near it. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that that's the honorable thing to do or the right thing to do. And so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but uh, don't think that I don't feel the weight of, of some of those things, too. I really do. Uh, it wasn't very long uh, being a pastor uh, when I was uh, first kind of confronted with the reality of you have to have, you know, a, a belief about what the Bible says concerning divorce and marriage and children and married uh, believers and unbelievers. You have to have a belief. You, can't, you can be of no practical help to anyone if you don't have a, a belief, especially in the role of a pastor where people are going to have questions and difficulties and challenges. So I had to work through these things, and in the process of working through them, certainly uh, Nathan and, and Steve and Justin had to work through them too, and, and they were very helpful to me working through them. Uh, Rodney was as well, uh, being a pastor at that time here in our church. Just really, and, and our working through it was not, what will people be happy about or unhappy about? Um, did not come up. It was, here are the passages in the Bible that deal with this issue. Let's wrestle within the context of the passages of, of the Bible. What, what does the Bible say? And then let's check ourselves and let's, let's go back and let's try to examine what the church has historically concluded about these things. Let's, na- let's make sure we're not some weird outlier on our belief on these things. And so that's what we had to do. It wasn't an easy process, but in the context of five pastors meeting together to talk about these things, it wasn't it wasn't a bad process either. It was, it was uh, one of the better experiences that I've had in going to the Bible and studying it uh, with God's people. Um, so all that to say that uh, I'm not uh, going to dodge uh, the text, which is our next text in 1 Corinthians, and I acknowledge disagreements, and I would never divide over someone on a disagreement on this issue because... It's not a primary uh, doctrinal issue for the Christian faith. And I will even admit that, uh, that I understand uh, the position uh, that would disagree with mine. 
But I, I think that especially what we're going to look at this morning is relatively clear. So we're going to read verses 10 through 16 and uh, try to unfold them as best we can in four points. Verse 10, now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And that's as far as we'll go right now. Time allowing, we may go a bit further because it, 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 I think there's something to be seen in verses 17 through 24. But there's a lot to chew on here. So I've split this up into four sections, but before we hit point number one, two preliminary points that I think are important. One, you will notice there is no condemnation in the, in the text here. This is not a text that says, uh, you know, so-and-so who does this thing is to be put out of the church, etc., etc. Now, adultery is certainly an issue that would uh, invoke church discipline, but the context of Paul writing this is not to condemn people for things they have done in their life. That is not what the passage is about. The context, if you went back to the first verse of chapter 7, is concerning the things you wrote to me. In other words, the church in Corinth had written to Paul, and they had asked questions, and he is answering the questions. Last week, we read his answer to issues like celibacy and intimacy in marriage, which they had written to him about, which strikes me as, as kind of weird and awkward. Uh, but they were missing a church tradition because they're a new church. You know, they come out of a pagan tradition. So you get saved and you go to church and you have life with God and now all of a sudden you start asking questions that pertain to the actual life you're living and you need answers. And they turned to Paul and said, we need some help with these things. And he tells them, you know, some of the stuff he's already said, celibacy is fine. It's not a bad thing. It's not to be condemned. It's good if you can do it, but not everybody can. Marriage is also good. We should glorify. Includes the, the whole section with, look, each one is given their own gift from God. So, you know, we should glorify God in our bodies. We should, we should honor God with whatever gift we're given. Marriage is a gift. If you have the gift of celibacy, that's a gift. He talks about the intimacy inside a marriage and basically says celibacy inside of marriage is a bad idea and you shouldn't do it unless, he gives a, an exception, you both agreed upon it for a period of time and even then return to each other quickly so that temptation doesn't enter the picture. And then he says... By the way, I'm not recommending this. <laughs> I say um, this is a concession, not a command. I'm not recommending this, but if some of you really feel like 
Celibacy inside of marriage is what God is calling you to for a brief period of time. I will concede it, but don't drag it out. Um, One of the points that I wanted to say about that just in passing last week that I didn't get to is there is a strain of Christian counseling outside of the church. Uh, At least most of it that I've seen takes place outside of the church. Um, A strain of Christian counseling that... Uh, likes to give advice not borne out by the scriptures at all to people who are in difficult circumstances. I don't even know why they identify themselves as Christian counselors, except they claim Christ and they say they're counselors. But in some Christian counseling, there are instructions that are designed to be therapeutic that are totally antithetical to what the Bible says and teaches. And I have watched people fall prey to this especially in marriage counseling. If you are in a difficult situation in marriage and you need counseling, your journey should begin with the pastor. Uh, And I'll say that, you know, as plainly as I possibly can. If you are two Christian people or you're one Christian person having trouble in your marriage, you need to start with the people whom God has given to shepherd your soul and to tell you what the Bible says and encourage you in this and pray with you in this. It should not be outside the church. And if you come to me for marital counseling, you shouldn't be ashamed. I have needed counsel in my marriage many, many times. And I've gone to pastors for counseling in marriage uh, every time. And I want to know, what does the Bible say? How should I live? This is a tough thing. It's not a shameful thing to want to do better, to want things to be better in your marriage. The idea that, oh, I'm some lesser person because we're having an issue here. That's ridiculous. That's nuts. That's, that's born out of some misconception of self-righteousness that Christians don't have any problems in marriage. That's ridiculous. But I have seen, quote-unquote, Christian counselors counsel Christian husbands and wives to separate and to live single for a while and to date themselves for a while and to see if that doesn't kindle up some affection for each other again. And I have never seen that work. Not once. Every single time, I have only seen something bad come out of it. So uh, just know the Apostle Paul is asked a similar question about separating intimacy for a time. Should we do this? Is this a good deal? Now, we don't have the context of the question, but we know he was asked the question. And what he says is, I don't recommend it. I will allow it if it's for prayer and fasting for a time, but... Don't do it for very long, and I'm not sure at all it's a good idea. It's certainly not a command. That's, that's his counsel. So we've dealt with some difficult things, uh, but there is no condemnation towards the Christian here. This is Paul giving instructions in replies to questions. The second preliminary thing that I'll say is I think that oftentimes people are uncomfortable whenever the issue of divorce or marriage or remarriage or comes up uh, because there's a, a sense of, of you know, shame or, or guilt over things that have happened in their life. Now here you don't find in the text Paul attempting to shame anyone or make anyone feel guilty for what's happened formerly in their life. Matter of fact, I would argue you see the opposite of that. But... I do think it's important to sort of level the playing field because that's what the Lord does when he says that anyone who has lusted after a woman, and I think a man is to be included in there, in his heart is guilty of adultery. 
And if you are guilty of adultery, well, then what does that make you? An adulterer. That's what it makes you. So, you know, I, I am an adulterer. Um, I, I have committed adultery. I have lusted after a woman in my heart. Okay? There, and, and Jesus is, is saying that to waylay those who would pretend that they have some self-righteous standing by which they can come to God deserving of fellowship and a relationship with Him. Whereas those who are the wicked sinners, they don't have any grounds. Jesus is leveling that. You know, he didn't give His life on the cross to save you know, righteous people from eternal condemnation. Jesus went to the cross to save sinners. And this is why Paul reiterates over and over again, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of all acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world and died on a cross to save sinners. And Paul adds at one point, of whom I am chief. So Paul is not writing this from a position of self-righteousness. He, he has confessed unbelievable sin to the church. He knows he's not worthy of any of these things. And so, if these things are very personal and very difficult to hear, resist the urge to hear a tone of self-righteousness or condemnation from me in the pulpit. This is instruction. And we need instruction. I have needed this. And so that's what we have uh, this morning. So, point number one, coming from verses 10 and 11. Uh, Christians should not divorce. That's point number one. Very simple instruction. Verse 10 says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. What does he mean by that? He means to those who are married I command, but I am only repeating the command that Jesus gave. In other words, Paul knew what Jesus had spoken. Now we know what Jesus had spoken because we have Matthew chapter 5 and we have Matthew chapter 19, and in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 31 and 32, Jesus says you should not divorce. And in Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 through 8, he says again, you should not divorce. You know, the 19 chapter is when he says, for from the beginning it was not so. God created man and wife and he put them together that the two should become one flesh and you shouldn't, not, you shouldn't divorce. And Moses only even you know, put divorce in the law uh, because of the hardness of your hearts and you're going to divorce these poor women while you're wandering around out there in the desert or, or in the promised land and kick them to the curb and remove all their security for no reason. He says, because the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote in regulations for when you divorce someone to provide for them and to care for them, but from the beginning it was not so. So Paul is saying, I'm not telling you a new command, I am telling you what the Lord says. That if you are a Christian and you're writing me asking, can we get divorces? He says, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, Paul omits the exception of sexual immorality that Jesus includes. But the general instruction is the same. Christian people are not supposed to divorce. Um, you can think through this logically or you can think through it spiritually. Let's do both. So spiritually, let's think through this. 
I was writing, marriage, marriage is meant to be a picture, and we know this from Ephesians and from Paul's writing, marriage is meant to be a picture between Christ and his relationship to the church, his people. Marriage is meant to be a picture between Jesus and his people. Um, divorce ruins that picture. Ergo, Christian people who are very concerned about honoring God in their life should not ruin what God has designed marriage to represent. But instead, they should cherish this privilege of presenting something that God has put into the world, marriage. They should cherish that as an opportunity to demonstrate the way Christ loves the church and the church is committed to Jesus. You know, it is to Christ that Paul directs the husband in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her, so a husband should love his wife and lay down his life for her. Now, a Christian man should be eager to do that. I mean, a Christian man should hear that and say, wait a minute, you're telling me that God has given me the privilege of representing Jesus' love and commitment for us in my treatment to my wife? I want to do a good job with that. That's a, that sounds like a big deal. I need to do a good job with that. And then you come home and your wife frustrates you or does something that you didn't plan on doing or lets you... <laughs> I saw that. I, I, it's weird the looks between husbands and wives that some of us are exchanging right now. But you come home and you think, what should I do here? What did Jesus do? He loved the church and he gave his life for the church and he did not condemn the church and break up with the church because the church did something wrong. He didn't throw out the relationship the first time you sinned. You know, I don't know how mad you have, you know, made your spouse. But you have never made Jesus so angry that he's finished with you. So, godly people from a spiritual perspective should cling to that. And if you're a wife... You think, wait a minute, you mean I get to represent the kind of faith that a Christian has to the Lord in trusting the Lord and honoring my husband and loving him and even submitting to him? I want to do a good job with that. I want to do that right. And it doesn't take logically even. It doesn't take a genius to figure out if you have a Christian woman who wants to love and honor and respect her husband, and a Christian man who's living to lay his life down sacrificially to serve his wife and to live in understanding with her, that shouldn't be a bad marriage. <laughs> it may not be easy, but it shouldn't be terrible. So Christians, from a spiritual perspective, are not supposed to divorce. But, you know, there's a logical part of this too. Because if two people are both Christians committed to the Lord... Whatever sin, whatever error takes place in the context of that relationship, whoever the sinning party is should be willing to acknowledge their sin and seek forgiveness. The, if you're a Christian in your marriage and you do something wrong, 
just like in every other context of your life, you should repent and seek reconciliation. Ask for forgiveness, right? And if you are the spouse in a Christian marriage who is living with a person who is a Christian seeking forgiveness and repentance, then you're supposed to be forgiving Christians who are sinning against you anyway. So from a spiritual and okay, Christian people should not be divorcing one another. Okay? Jesus said this, and so, you know, you, you got to admire how Paul just, you know, every once in a while I'll say something uncomfortable, I'll be like, don't get mad at me, this is what the Bible says. And Paul's doing the same thing. Hey, I got a command, but it's really the Lord's. You know, you got to like the way he jumps behind the shield there to say, Jesus said this. A woman is not to depart from her husband. A man is not to... Divorce his wife, okay? That's, if you're Christian people approaching the subject, that's what you get to. Now, is this easy? Marriage is not easy. <laughs> now, Brian did not have said, but Nicole nodded, so Brian, you better, you got some improvement to do. No, marriage is not easy, is it? It's not easy. It's difficult, and it's difficult because you have two people who are sinners, trying, even in the, under the best circumstances, sinners trying to honor God and live righteously before Him, but failing frequently enough. And, and in marriage, you know, you, you often will hear people say something like, well, I, I saw more of who that person really was when I married them. No kidding! Huh. No kidding! And what they usually mean by that is, the closer I got to that person, in the context of marriage the more I saw their flaws and their sin come out, of course. Of course. So it's not easy. And yet, it's what's right. That's Paul's instruction. All right, point number one. Christians should not divorce. Point number two. Do not divorce your spouse because they are lost. That's point number two. Do not divorce your spouse because they are lost. This is verses 12 and 13. Let's read together. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, if you were just reading this one verse out of context, you might say, oh, well, then this is just a recommendation. So we can skip past it. That's not what he means. In the prior section, he said, I and the Lord. Here he's saying, I but not the Lord. He's saying, I'm not quoting Jesus here. Which, by the way, if you're a Christian, you should be encouraged by that because Paul in the first century is being very careful not to put words in the Lord's mouth <laughs> when he, he probably could have got away with it in a lot of different scenarios teaching to a bunch of people who had never heard from Jesus and who didn't have a new testament in their hands to cross check him but he knows what the Lord said and what the Lord didn't and he said the Lord didn't answer this question when he was before you but I will answer it, and this is the inspired word of God, and it's authoritative, and you better pay attention. Okay, so I'm not quoting Jesus, but this is God's word. This is instruction. To the rest, now who, who's the rest? Well, we find out. I not the Lord say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe. So the rest are those who are married, but they came to salvation um, in the context of a lost marriage, which would have been very understandable in the Corinthian church. Because Paul showed up, and people are preaching the gospel, and people are getting saved. 
and it's great if husband and wife get saved. But maybe only husband, or maybe only wife. And there are a lot of questions about where that leaves that marriage and that couple. And so he's saying, now look, if you've got two Christian people who are married, you should both be on board with this instruction. You're not supposed to get a divorce. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So what's the instruction? When you're in a marriage relationship and one person is a Christian and the other person is not, their lack of faith in Jesus Christ is not grounds for divorce. That's what he's saying. If I get saved and my wife isn't, but she is willing to live with me and to carry out her commitment in marriage to me, um, I should not divorce her. If the opposite were to happen, my wife gets saved and I'm lost, she should not divorce me just because we are of different faiths. And when we say that, we should acknowledge perhaps a little bit more honest language. Even though one of us has fellowship with God and the other is following after darkness in this world. Even if one of us has fellowship with God and the other is involved in the pagan religious systems on this world, if they are willing to live peacefully with you, knowing your faith in Jesus, you should not divorce them. That's what he says. That's the instruction. Now, that is very hard because raising children with an unbeliever as your spouse will be a really hard thing to do. Be a hard thing to do, um, potentially. Now, maybe you would have an unbeliever as a spouse, as is often the case in our culture, where although the testament is an unbeliever, they were raised in sort of the Judeo-Christian value system and ethic system that we've all grown up in. I mean, even... Even unbelievers who don't care anything about God's word believe some simple ethical things that we believe as Christians in our culture. I mean, usually people don't get, you know, a free pass for cheating on their spouse in our culture. You know, they may not believe the Bible, but that's an influence of Judeo-Christian ethics. In our culture, people are, you know, not supposed to get a pass when they, when they beat their spouse or when they, when they abuse their children or... But this is... A different context. These people are not being saved out of a Judeo-Christian context. What context are they being saved out of? Pagan idolatry. Where to worship your God, in many cases, involved going to a temple and engaging in sexual immorality. That's the blunt truth. Paul has already referenced that once here in what, chapter 6, I believe. So, this is not easy. Even if your spouse isn't doing that, you're going to have under one roof someone who is trying to honor the Lord Jesus Christ with their life and someone else who has their own temple and their own code of morality and their own ethics, uh, inflicting whatever kinds of emotional and spiritual and practical consequences that come with that 
on the spouse. That doesn't sound easy to me. I've not been in that situation, but it doesn't sound easy. I'm not sure what kind of sin a person in that situation would have to just learn to tolerate. I'm not sure. No doubt there would be sin. I'm not sure what it would be like to have idols and a completely false religious system ongoing under one roof that you have to tolerate. It would be tough. And so we shouldn't blame the Corinthians for asking this question. It sounds kind of crass the first time you say, well, my spouse is lost, can I divorce him? What kind of a jerk would ask that question, right? But it was more complicated than that, as these things often are. And he's saying, marriage is important to God and important to the family and important to society if you have an unbelieving spouse who is willing to stay in this committed marriage with you apart from their salvation, then you should not divorce them. So that's point number two. You can't divorce your spouse just because they're lost. Point number three. A marriage can be holy by the faith of the believer. This is verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. I believe what Paul is saying here is an acknowledgement that children are the natural the natural outcome of an ongoing marriage relationship. Not in every context, but in the overwhelming majority of contexts, if you are in a marriage relationship, and again, I'm avoiding any kind of, I'm paying attention to little ears around, but children are an outcome. And so, thinking along the lines of raising children in a home with an unbeliever and the influence the unbeliever will have on the children it would make sense why someone would say, is this a good idea? Should I not divorce my spouse uh, for the sake of my children, my offspring? And Paul uses the word unclean here, which is actually a very rare word to see in the New Testament, unless it's referring to something in the Old Testament. But he's using the word unclean, and unclean is the idea of corruption, In other words, it would be a natural question to ask, are my children going to be corrupted in this marriage relationship with an unbelieving spouse? And what Paul is saying is, it is not an unclean or a corrupt marriage because you have a believer marrying an unbeliever. The word he uses is sanctified, and I think that word is appropriate. Now, sanctified is a big word, and we might not all be familiar with it, but when we speak of sanctification, we speak of the influence of the Spirit of God that it has in our lives over a period of time to make us more and more like Jesus. If you want to learn two big words, justification is what happens when we get saved. By faith, we are justified before God, meaning just, legally acceptable. By faith, The blood of Jesus forgives our sins, okay? Justification. Sanctification is the ongoing process 
of us conforming more and more to the image of Jesus. And how does that happen? Well, the Spirit of God exposes us more and more to right thinking. And Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's sanctification, transformation. My life changes. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. God's Spirit in fellowship with us causes us to think about things and to apply that thinking to our lives in a way that we would not have without God in fellowship with Him. So you understand then, I hope, why that word is appropriate here. You may have an unbeliever that you're married to, but if you have a child of God in the marriage, think of the exposure that unbeliever is going to have to the work of God through this marriage with a believer. In other words, it's not the same as two lost people living together. There is going to be a real divine influence there. And we certainly wouldn't look at the children of that relationship and, and, and think, well, they're, they're corrupt, they're unclean, they've been ruined, or they're spiritually unacceptable. He says the opposite. The presence of one believing parent you know, sanctifies a child. He's not talking about justification. Again, justification happens at salvation. You're not saved because you have a Christian parent. But you are exposed to God by a Christian parent. Your thinking is transformed by a Christian parent. You're certainly not all of a sudden acceptable because one of your parents is an unbeliever. This would have been a legitimate concern. How am I going to raise kids to honor God in this marriage? And Paul says... By the work of God in your life, you know, your kids are not unclean. They're not unacceptable. They're not corrupted. They're sinners. They need to be saved, but it's not some lost cause. Does that make sense? So, a marriage can be holy by the faith of the believer. Again, I just want to emphasize that's a really amazing thing. That God can do that through the faithful living of a a Christian person. And there are some people in, in this room this morning who waited years for their spouse to accept Jesus and to, to honor the Lord with their lives. And there are are some who saw that happen and are here right now. And there are others who didn't. There's something honorable and Christ like in representing Jesus to an unbeliever, especially in marriage, when it is undoubtedly most challenging in human relationships. So that's point number three. Last one, point number four. It's a tough one. Peace is the governing principle when one spouse is saved and the other is not. Now you could misinterpret that, so we need to look at the verses carefully. Um, verse 15 if the unbeliever departs let him depart a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases but God has called us to peace so his explanation of this instruction which is hard is that peace should be the governing principle here We'll hit the second, verse 16, in a second, okay? 
but I, I want you to think about this. The Christian is not supposed to divorce their unbelieving spouse for the sake of freedom or an easier life or an easier marriage. But neither are they supposed to fight a spouse who departs and who is exiting and demanding out. When Paul says God has called us to peace, he's not talking about the kind of peace that we think of when we talk about, well, let's just make peace in our marriage. Marriage is not always a peaceful thing. Okay, there are arguments and disagreements. There are disputes and there are difficulties and there are some wounds that last longer than others. that are not maybe forgiven but are still felt for a long time. When he says God has called us to peace, he's not saying, oh, the marriage is just too hard anymore so have peace by divorcing and going your separate ways. That's not the context in which he says that. What he says is, if the unbeliever leaves, they're done. In other words, you're supposed to fight for your marriage, but you're not supposed to be fighting your spouse as an enemy would. In other words, if an unbelieving spouse is now viewing you as the enemy, God has called us to peace. Now, I don't know how to read verse 15 in any other way than that. Okay? I have to admit, there's a part of me that just says, no, never let him leave. Never let him go. Fight, fight, fight. There's a part of me that feels that way. I was raised in a Christian home by Christian parents. There was fighting, (laughs) plenty of it, at various times, but there was no divorce. And I have been a part of a Christian marriage, and there was no divorce. There's a part of me that wants to say, no, never fight. Never let them go. But I don't know how to read verse 15 any other way. If an unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. So I am yielding my never-give-up attitude here by faith to what the Bible is plainly saying and trusting God that He knows better than me in these situations. That's where I'm at, which is not a unique position to be in. I've done that with a number of things in my life. When it says... A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. Verse 39 of the same chapter, if you want to turn ahead, explains the language. I mean, you think you know what it means. Bound in that marriage anymore is not bound, meaning they're, they're not bound in that marriage anymore. But verse 39 explains it even clearer what what bounding, what bondage this means. It says, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be remarried to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So, to me, it seems pretty clear that the text is saying, if you are in a marriage with an unbeliever and that unbeliever departs and is done and divorces you, you are to let them go 
And in that scenario, you are no longer bound to that person. And at least in verse 39, it's the exact same language that he talks, that he uses when he explains the liberty to be married to whom you wish, with the exception, only in the Lord. Now, we'll get to verse 39 next week, but again, I'm trying to be as transparent as I can with why I believe what I believe here. That's it. And you may not agree with me, but at least I'm making my argument as best I can from the text. It's not what I feel and what I think and what I like. Uh, I have to yield to what I believe the scriptures teach here. And that's what I believe this is saying. Um, second part of verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, for 2,000 years, commentators have been split, not by what this means, but they've been split on how to apply what Paul is saying here. Because it's true. And as a true thing, it can have more than one application. It's true. You don't know when you are married to an unbeliever if the outcome of your faithful service to the Lord and evangelism in that person's life, you don't know if the outcome is going to be salvation. That's true. We hope that the outcome is salvation. We're commanded not to divorce the person just because they're lost. But if they're willing to live with us in marriage, to live with them in marriage. But we don't know that the outcome, it's no guarantee of salvation. So be careful in your encouragement to someone in this situation. Don't just say, ah, just keep at it and they'll get saved. You don't know that. And Paul is acknowledging that. You don't know that. And it applies in two ways. And this is where commentators get split on how to apply it. He could be, don't divorce in light of his earlier command, not to divorce someone who's willing to stay with you. He could be saying, don't divorce them because they might get saved. He could also be saying, in light of what he had just said in the verses prior, don't fight them and fight them and fight them and refuse to divorce them because, again, you don't know that they're going to get saved. So, do what you want with verse 16. It is a true statement that can serve either as an encouragement or a warning. But the instructions seem to be clear to me. They seem to be clear. Um, so, point number one. Christians should not divorce. Point number two, do not divorce your spouse because they are lost. Point number three, a marriage can be holy by the faith of the believer. And point number four, peace is the governing principle when one spouse declares themselves an enemy. Okay? Um, where do I want to end this? I could just go in my room and hide for a while. I could end it that way. <laughs> where do I want to end this? I want to end it here, and this is a good launching point for next week. These questions existed in Corinth because God saves sinners. That's why they existed. Um, if God does not save people who are in sin or who are unbelievers, none of these questions matter. It doesn't matter. But here you have people whom God has saved and now they have to figure out, what do I do? Here I've given my life to the Lord and my spouse has 
taken off to another city and refuses to speak to me ever again or whatever it is. What do I do? Or here I'm married to, I'm, I'm committed my life to the Lord and I'm married to an unbeliever and they're willing to stay with me, but this is what I've got to put up with. What do I do? The questions exist because God saves sinners. And I don't know. When I think of my life um, and the context out of which God saved me, it's a very humbling thing. And if you are here today, as I know one of you who professed this to me right before I walked in the building, if you are here today and you are wrestling with, I'm just, I'm not sure that I'm good enough. Yeah, I believe these things, these things make sense to me. I know that I'm a sinner, but I'm, I'm not sure that I'm good enough to be a Christian. Yeah, I believe, but I, I'm not sure that I'm ready to be baptized because I'm not good enough to. Um, God saves sinners. And he gives instructions and help and guidance and brothers and sisters to encourage people and to help you. But he does not save people who have found a way to make themselves clean from all of their sin. He gets right down into the mess. And he will lead you out of the mess. He will lead you through the mess. And he will not relinquish control of your life back over to the mess. He saves sinful people. But you know, to believe that, it takes faith. If you look at your life and you see sin and shame and guilt, you have to believe that the Lord will do what he's promised to do, which is forgive you of all of your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and to have fellowship with you in this life and bring you into his eternal kingdom. The words of Jesus, come to me all ye who are weak and heavy laden, weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Those are the words of a father who wants to have fellowship with you and a savior who went to the cross to cover your sin. He saves sinners, um, no matter how messy the life is. So let me pray for you now as we close. Father, help us to yield to your word and give us a, a love for the body and a love for each other as your spirit works in our lives. I thank you for your great faithfulness to me and to your people that you have sustained us and brought us to this point. I ask, Father, that you will give us the strength to honor you in our lives and in our relationships. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.